Hey, I'm Steve Follin. Thanks for listening. This episode of Being Freelance is supported by the lovely people at FreeAgent, the award-winning cloud accounting software loved and trusted by over 60,000 freelancers and small businesses, myself included. To claim your one-month free trial, visit freeagent.com slash beingfreelance. But right now, let's find out what it's like being freelance. For professional know-it-all, Kat Molesworth. I had this dream one night that I had been given a ticket for my birthday to this amazing event and I woke up in the morning and I was genuinely gutted that I didn't have that ticket and I realised that if I wanted it to exist in the world I was going to have to do it. People really enjoy seeing every part of you, they want to understand who you are and when people are buying they're going to be buying because of you, they're not necessarily going to be buying because of what you're selling. So you have to really promote who you are, even if that means that you let the worst parts of you loose online. I just want to do everything. I want to build everything. I want to create everything. But then, you know, I also want to be a homebody. Yeah, so there is Kat, freelance know-it-all. First time I've had to introduce somebody as that. We we debated long and hard as to what to call herself. You will see why. There, there's so much that she does that it became hard to pinpoint it. So that's what she picked. But she's probably best known for Blogtacular, which is a big event for bloggers here in the UK, the podcast as well. Although actually the event isn't happening this year, as I speak in 2019. They're having like a fallow year, a bit like Glastonbury. But um, yes, that's what she's known for. We'll discuss that and much more. You will find what she's up to at beingfreelance.com, where there's over 150 guests. There's new articles. Just this week, I published one about what you need to do if you want to start a podcast i get asked that question a lot i thought i would answer it once and for all in a blog post it's at beingfreelance.com also i have and this i mean this kind of deserves a drum roll or something i feel like i don't have much fanfare but after four years of doing the podcast i have finally decided to bring us all together you see i get contacted by people listening to this podcast from all over the world. And it's really, really cool to hear what you're up to and what you're doing. I thought, wouldn't it be better if we could all chat to each other? Because if there's one thing we've learned through listening to this podcast and the vlogging that I've done and everything, like it is the meeting people, it's the chatting to people, it's discussing ideas, it's supporting each other, it's building your networking quotation marks and helping each other out that makes everything better. So yes, I have started a community for being freelance So if you enjoy this podcast, you're a freelancer, if you want to connect with those like-minded people who are doing cool things and want to do even cooler things, then come join us. I have put it in Facebook. If you search for Being Freelance Community or Being Freelance on Facebook, then you will find us there. I literally only started it this week, so you will be like a founding honorary member if you're hearing this as it goes out, and it would be lovely to see you there really early on. And I want to point out that I want it to be a really positive place and a place for us to have fun, but also to maybe set some challenges. That doesn't have to be a big thing, but like stuff to really help us think and build our businesses, but also a place to do like an extension of what being freelance is. So I hate the word content, really, but a place to do additional content. And by that, I mean, like, there's a chance to do like live Q&As. 
So instead of just me talking to myself like I am now and then you hearing it, like a thing where you can actually join in and ask questions at the same time as I'm chatting to somebody. Yeah, so we can all come together. Like that sounds like a cool thing to do. And Facebook feels like the best place to do it. Yes, I've got lots of ideas. I won't spout them all off now, but come find us on Facebook if you will. It would be great to see you there. Please do. Just search in Facebook being freelance and i will see you there right now though let's crack on with this one shall we and say hello to professional freelance know-it-all kat molesworth hey kat hello thank you so much for doing this there, there is so many things that i could have introduced you as which is why we went with freelance know-it-all but how about we yeah hear your sort of story like how did you get started being freelance how have you ended up where you are today I think my story is not uncommon to a lot of women who start their own businesses. I got absolutely screwed over by my employer when I had my first child. I was on track to move into management. Um, I got very little support when I was doing that. I had a manager tell me that I was going to be stood down from my role because I was going on leave. And that leave was maternity leave. And when somebody encouraged me to come forward and say that to the senior management in the company, I was taken through this process, like a grievance process against my will, and they found that I was a terrible manager. And I was like, well, that's fine. I'm a brand new manager. But they also found written evidence that the person was standing me down because I was going on maternity leave. And they still discounted that as the reason that I was being stood down. And I just felt that I couldn't go back to that employer. So I wanted to find a career where I could work at home, where I could look after my children the way I wanted to. And eventually I found online, but initially I started out childminding. Jeez. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just so much wrong. The trouble is, it's one of those things, isn't it, where you, you can fight and win and you still don't want to go back there. So so you decide to essentially become your own boss so that you can treat yourself a lot better than they did. Yeah. So you start with childminding and where did it go? I mean, childminding works really well for me, but I kept having babies, which is really disruptive to running a successful childminding business because you have to take maternity leave and it's not fair on your clients. And then I'd finished having children and I was childminding this lovely, lovely child who's still one of my children's best friends. And I had started an online film and photography school. So all of this time that I was working on this, I had started my blog, Housewife Confidential, the year I had my daughter in 2007. And that had led to me getting paid opportunities. And when my husband suffered employment discrimination, when I just had my third child, the blog saved us. The blog was what kept us afloat, what paid the mortgage. Because I was on maternity leave with my third child, and it was an absolute shot in the guts for us. It was really hard. But at that point, I'd realized that I could do something online. I could make money that way. And I started an online film and photography school with one of my friends. And that took off and was so successful that I gave up childminding at that point to focus in on running our business online. And then a year later, we launched a conference. So just to put things in perspective, when was it that you left work and became a childminder? I left work in 2007 on maternity leave. So officially I left work a year later in 2008 and became a childminder that year. And then I launched Capturing Childhood, which was our film of photography school in 2012 and Blogtacular in 2013 with the first event being 2014. And when did you start that first Housewife Confidential blog, which saved you? 
2007 and then it was 2011 that my husband's boss stopped paying him randomly one day. He eventually went to jail. We've got a very <laughs> colored past of being employed by other people. <laughs> so yeah, that that went completely wrong. It was a really awful situation, but it led to my husband starting his own company. So we're now like quite an entrepreneurial household and we support ourselves. And I think that gives us a lot of freedom, both in how we live our lives, but also to control our income. Mm. And so you mentioned Blogtacular. So just to explain what Blogtacular is for people who haven't heard of it. So Blogtacular is an online community, a podcast and a conference. So the conference is our sort of jewel in the crown, like it's our essential big event every year. We've run it for the last five years. It brings together speakers from across the blog and creative industries to talk about things that are going to have a direct impact on our audience's success. So we're really not big on telling the story of how somebody got there at the event. We're big on telling them what somebody else can take away and replicate the next day to give them success. So we have a podcast for telling people's stories. We have a conference for changing people's lives. What led you to starting that like was it originally looking for a community of other people doing things like you I mean there's some of that I had been to some really dreadful events where I felt like I had been cheated out of my time I'd been paid to go to them but I still felt cheated that I was there <laughs> they were just so bad and you'd get people standing up on stage who didn't know what they were talking about or you would have um like I went to a publishing talk where somebody said that she got her publishing deal because her brother-in-law worked in publishing. And I was like, that's great. I can't replicate that. My brother-in-law makes planes. You know, he's not helpful to me in that way. Unless I want an ejector seat on a fighter jet, he'd be great. But he's not going to get me a book published. And it just really frustrated me. And then I had this dream one night, right before my birthday, that I had been given a ticket for my birthday to this amazing event where there were lots of creative speakers, the kind of bloggers that I was reading, the kind of people who were doing really innovative things. And it was really fun and it was colorful and it was just very friendly, which a lot of these events were not. And I woke up in the morning and I was genuinely gutted that I didn't have that ticket. And I spent like the next week or so just remembering that dream and being really angry that it didn't exist. And I realized that if I wanted it to exist in the world, I was going to have to do it. And so by the end of the month, we'd bought domains and had our launch plan in place. So three children, you're you're doing all of the things that were bringing you money, but then you start that side project, which wouldn't have been bringing you money at the time. How did you manage to fit everything in? When children are small, they sleep a lot, which is great. So I started writing for Bambino Goodies, which is like a design-led children's product blog in 2008, which was probably one of my big realizations that I could make money online was working professionally with Natalie at Bambino. And I managed to write for that because my daughter had three naps a day. It was brilliant. And so you just find time where you can. There's plenty of things I don't do. So I don't do huge amounts of socializing. I don't clean my house. I've, I've literally zero tolerance for doing the cleaning, doing any housework. We ha we pay somebody to come twice a week to do the house so that we don't have to because it's not a good use of our time. And I just really prioritize things. Now, there are times when, you know, when we did that launch and when we were running up to the first conference, we didn't really know what we were doing. I'd be working till two in the morning. You know, my youngest child was two at that point and it was really tough. I had no childcare when we set up. 
And so it had to beg, borrow and steal to have children minded or looked after for small periods of time so I could sit down and get work done. And it was definitely a struggle. And I don't think anyone who has children and who runs a business is going to tell you that it's easy. And, you know, there are plenty of people out there who say they just don't see their children and their children have learned to understand that. But then you also have people like Richard Branson, who said, you know, he would be on important international conference calls whilst also changing a nappy because he worked at home so that he could see his children. So I think it's about prioritizing and giving as much time as you can. So now, you know, I can drop everything and spend a week doing the school plays photos or, you know, I'm going up to parliament with the school next week and I'm going to be making a video for them. I can take that time off to dedicate to the children, give them really, you know, good attention. Whereas, I don't know, maybe not everyone with a job can do that. So if we were to look at your business today, with all the many things that you do, like what what does that look like now? Like as in what brings you money to actually pay the bills? The majority of my income comes from three areas. So photography, I'm a professional photographer. I love shooting people's products and shooting people. So a percentage of my income comes from that. It's probably something not that I don't push as much online, but it is my passion. It's been my passion since I was a child. I also do speaking. So I will go to events and I'll speak. I'll talk about the kind of work that we do. I'll be on panels. I was speaking at the ASA's conference last week as they launched their new five-year plan. And I was speaking alongside really important people like the head of policy at Facebook and Dr. Tanya Byron and like these really interesting people like Lily and Betty. And there's, you know, the element of feeling like, oh, what am I doing here? But I know that I've got knowledge that other people don't. So speaking works really well for me because I love to talk and I love to have an opinion. And then I guess the majority of my income comes from consulting. So I'll work with brands, big and small, on their blog outreach and their social media plans and discussing blogger vetting, all sorts of different reasons a brand might come to me to use my knowledge. So it might be that we have a pick your brain Skype session where they just hire me for an hour or two to work through various different what if this what if that questions um or it might be that I go in for a day or two and go and do training with a brand so that that's that's probably my most interesting work because every company is different and every company has a different outlook so it's really finding out what's going to work in the market for the way that company does business and is that something you market yourself as doing not enough you know if somebody listening to this would listen to my advice, they would know that I would say you need to get out there and you really need to be telling everybody what you do all the time, telling them how great you are at it so that they know that that's what they come to you for. But I'm actually really quiet about the majority of my work. I spend more time promoting what I do at Blogtacular than I do promoting my actual work, I guess. So how did that first consulting type work, how did that first come about? Was it simply that someone saw what you were doing with Blogtacular and went, ah, presumably she knows what the hell she's talking about? Yes. So I would be pitching to brands who I would like to sponsor the conference and I would be talking to them about what we can do, like ideas I had to work together and they might not take sponsorship, but they might hire me as a consultant or they might take a sponsorship and hire me as a consultant, which is the ideal situation. You know, I really love creating 
bespoke sponsorships with Blogtacular that work for brands. So things that are going to have an impact in the area that they're trying to work on in their business. There's nothing that's more boring than just renting space. You know, that's not going to excite me. I want the company to have a really, really good experience at the conference. And I think that's why companies trust me to come in and consult because I might not look like your typical consultant, but they know from speaking to me and spending time with me that I, I genuinely have a passion for what I'm doing and for, for their success. Presumably the first time you put on like an event, I mean, you said how much work it was, but that's a big thing to do. Like I always presume like a quite a financial stress of a thing to do as well. Oh my goodness. And I did not really realize that when we started planning it. I didn't realize that the event space would want to be paid ahead of time or that it wasn't easy to sell tickets on an unproven event. I just had no idea. I was very naive when I went into it. My experience before is that we'd run a 30 person workshop and I was like, how much harder can 300 people be? turns out a lot harder. On top of everything you've mentioned so far, I know you do YouTube Mm. as well (laughs) so there's another thing to add so obviously you photographer but you you make films as well you make videos as well yeah I love I love making films I think it's one of those things I always really really wanted to do and I don't know if you're of the same age as me but when I was a kid there was a show called Rolf's Cartoon Club with Rolf Harris who is now problematic so when I go in and do talks at school or make films with kids at school, I can no longer show the intro to Rolf's cartoon club. I'm like, you guys can't <laughs> no. watch this anymore. This is bad. But there was this show and it was all about sort of making stop motions and cartoons. And I always wanted to do it, but I just didn't know how. I didn't have access to the right equipment or the right knowledge. And it was one of those ambitions that I just thought was going to go nowhere until I got my first camera that did video. And then it, you know, it just took off. I started making videos straight away. And yes, I did. I challenged myself to do a YouTube video every week for a year, which is really hard. So I'd spend one one day a week editing because editing takes a huge amount of time. So I'm a bit more of a slacker on YouTube at the moment, but it's definitely something I really enjoy doing. Was that challenge useful to have or was it like overwhelming? I think a challenge allows you to just do it because you have said you'll put out a video every week. And so you just have to meet that. You just have to find a way to meet that. And there are a couple of weeks, especially around the conference, where I was behind on my videos and I I skipped a couple of weeks, but then I made them up at the end so that the total was there. But it's really difficult, like having to meet that deadline. But then, you know, there are people out there who make a video every day. So a video every week isn't that stressful. (laughs) Although it depends how much footage you've got, you know, when it comes to editing it, because yours, that sort of documentary vlog type feel, whereas if you were doing one a day, it might not be quite so in depth. Obviously, because I've got seven days of footage to edit down, they've only got one. But it's it's the relentlessness of it. And I think when you're filming it, you have to think about what's the arc of this video going to be. So some weeks, I think my videos were really boring because I was filming every day and I wasn't editing out any big days, which I could have. I could have edited out the more boring days when I just sit at my desk and do nothing. So yeah, I do think I could get better at that. I could work harder at refining the story that I'm telling and I think when I come back and start doing YouTube a bit more enthusiastically than I am currently that will be my challenge. Is it easy for you to like pick things up and then let them go like there must be lots of ideas that come into your head. 
yeah, that's that's the hardest thing. I just want to do everything. I want to build everything. I want to create everything. I want to have five different podcasts. You know, I want to go and speak at every conference around the world. I want to travel. But then, you know, I also want to be a homebody. So, you know, it's it's constantly a challenge to focus on what I'm supposed to be working on, not researching what I would like to be working on. How have you found the business side of it? Like when you started your blog, did you set out with an ambition of it being a business or or not? No. I mean, there are a couple of people who had adverts on their blog and they were clearly making their living and a comfortable living that way. So I knew it was a possibility. But I I just wanted to talk to people. I was suddenly cut off from this really busy corporate environment. And in 2007, we only just had Facebook open up to people. So there was no social media buzz. It was just suddenly I was at home and I was very tied to the home and I had no one to talk to and I had no one to share my ideas or my thoughts with. And so my blog was a way of reaching other people. And I I remember there was one day, probably about a year in, I was making a pair of trousers for my daughter. And I I blogged three times in that day to update people about these pair of trousers. Uh, Now, sadly, archived, so you can't go back and look at it. But, you know, if if that was now, I would just be tweeting about it or doing an Instagram story and taking people along with me and having that instant feedback. But at the time, I just put out a few blog posts and whoever happened upon my blog during that day left comments. And, you know, that's how I felt a small bit of connection. But that was very much what I was interested in was like documenting our family life because I lost a parent when I was very young and every snippet of that normality that you can get really means something to you. So I wanted something in the world where my children could come back and relive that, but also connection because I was, oh my God, bored. So bored. You know, you you kind of said like people who would stumble across what you were doing. Although, as you say, it's a very different world. So maybe blogs were easier to trip over at the time, or I don't know. Did the connection come easily? It did. Like, I think, Because you find blogs that you want to comment on and they become your readers because they're also looking for people. One of the best things about early days of blogging was the blog role. So you had a list of people in your sidebar whose blogs you liked. And so anybody who read your blog and liked your blog would then go and look at whoever you liked. And being listed on people's blog roles was one of the ways that I became known I guess it's how people started to hear about me and also how I shared like my appreciation for other bloggers I really missed the blog role I think it was just such a nice thing it was like you know my space where you had your top six friends or whatever it's one of those things where you could advertise to the world who it was you you found interesting it's like another string to your bow I had a friend and when she had a blog role I think half of my traffic like new people visiting the site would come from that blog role. And so just going back to that whole business thing, so you were saying, you know, you you started it for for connection. What was that point where you suddenly thought, oh, actually, there could be more to this? It was when I started working with Bambino Goodies. And quite soon after I started writing for them, Natalie and I went to a trade event, which sadly doesn't exist anymore. It was basically a children's clothing event, but it was all filled with indie designers. It was really beautiful. And I can't, I can't remember exactly what she said to me, but she said something along the lines of, you know, you have like a, a lot of potential to make this your career. 
and I'm excited about working with you, something like that. And that really stuck with me that I hadn't thought about it as my potential career at that point in 2008. And I started to after that. So obviously Bambino Goodies was a paid role. I was paid to write there, which was wonderful. And I could bring in advertising. Um, and that really gave me the ability to understand how that type of blog business, the very on the page business worked. And then I just learned from my friends, you know, what they were doing. And I did have advertising on my site for a period of time. But the big break came when I launched my own school. What did you learn from that? Well, (laughs) I learned that you can sell an e-course before you've written it. And that's always my advice to anyone who wants to do an e-course is write it as you do the first one, because you'll get that instant feedback. You'll understand what people want from you, like have it planned out, but don't necessarily have it completely written before you sell it, because you get that lovely feedback in that first ever class that means you can shape it as you go along rather than having to go back and correct yourself. I learned a lot, like marketing online is so important. Having the right people speak up for you and tell people about what you're doing is really important. Press is invaluable. I think one of our biggest sales days came when The Guardian featured us in their gift guide. And it's something I'm so grateful for to this day because we like we're literally we upgraded our cameras that day because we did so well. And that really took our business to the next level because we suddenly had a much bigger market and a lot more people who were taking our classes. So, yeah, they featured our gift vouchers. So a lot of people were gifted our classes and they came to them, never having heard of us, not really knowing what we did, but leaving us taking beautiful pictures of their children, which is all I wanted because there's nothing worse than a bad Facebook photo of your friend's kids. <laughs> and I, I'm very lucky. None of my friends ever want to listen to my interviews. So I can, <laughs> I can slate them all with impunity. My friends take terrible photos. They've inspired a lot of my work. <laughs> <laughs> But you're learning all of that. So as you learn that about the importance of marketing and press, how much time does that take out? Is it something like that is a regular part of your your week? Yeah, absolutely. Everything that you do on social media is marketing. So, you know, even my most asinine tweets, I consider them to be personal branding and marketing for what I'm doing. You know, it's people understanding who you are. It's people getting to know what you're interested in. So, you know, I do this ridiculous DJing thing where I wear sequin dresses and over the top makeup that some like one of my Instagram friends taught me how to do. And I go out and play like really retro 80s, 90s songs. and I put that on my socials because people really enjoy seeing every part of you. They want to understand who you are. And when people are buying, they're going to be buying because of you. They're not necessarily going to be buying because of what you're selling. So you have to really promote who you are, even if that means that you let the worst parts of you loose online. I mean, I'm presuming that the sequin DJing is not the worst part of you. That sounds marvellous. <laughs> I mean, it's terribly embarrassing. I call myself DJ Supercat and um, I take myself <laughs> very, very seriously. So, yeah, no, people try and book me for free and I'm like, no, this is my job. You can pay me. No, that's not the worst part of me. The worst part of me is my unending sarcasm, which I also, you know, quite happily let loose on Twitter and on YouTube because... You know, if somebody's going to get to know you, they've got to know all of you. How has the work-life balance situation been for you? I know you mentioned, you know, getting a cleaner and, you know, letting some things go. But obviously it must have changed a lot since you were first having your 
kids as they've grown? Yes. Well, now, so they are seven, nine, and 11 now, and they have some kind of club every day of the week. So there's a lot of life balance in just being the parent taxi. There's a lot of negotiation goes on at home as to who's going to be where at which club with which child and when are we going to eat (laughs) because we seem to spend every day driving them around. I tend to be quite fiercely guarding of our time off. So we will go on holidays and we will take our computers with us, if not only to watch TV. But, you know, we won't work during the day. We'll be like really strict about not working during the day. You know, the holiday is for relaxing, spending time with each other, taking time off. I'm in the privileged position that I can knock back my work quite a lot during the school holidays so that I can be present for them and and just spend time with them. But then they, you know, they also work with me. So they really understand like what I'm trying to achieve. They've been there since the beginning of Blogtacular. So like they have their own opinions about the conference and what we should do and what's in the goodie bags this year. And, you know, they are very involved with what I do, which I think is a really nice thing to have as a family because, you know, when I was a kid, my dad worked in Westminster. So I had no real concept of what he did until he brought home some AIDS education badges. And it was like, okay, this is a bit heavy. I'm only four. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, and his work was top secret. He couldn't really talk about it because it was government work. Whereas my children like watch me doing work. Occasionally they do work with me. So they get paid anytime that I do campaigns with brands that involve them and we're being paid, they get paid part of the money. Somebody once suggested that they should be getting all of the money And I take exception to that because I built the platform, I took the photos, I pitched the concept. (laughs) They just sat there and did what they were told. So they get some money, but they don't get all of it. So it sounds like, I mean, I I don't know, like, would you say like you have a lot of goals and ambition? Yes. um, If they're listening, I would like to be in the House of Lords one day. (laughs) I came up with that goal the other day. I was like, I would really like to influence public policy. I'm not going to run as an MP, but, you know, I can hold the ambition that one day I would like to be a lord. I don't think that's unrealistic. (laughs) Hey, who's to say that can't happen? Exactly right. Floella Benjamin's in there. Somebody who I (laughs) I take as like a personal hero of mine. Yeah. Because when I was a child at Childminders, all we did was watch TV. So Maurice Stewart, Floella Benjamin, the entire cast of Sesame Street are all the people who raised me. So, What would you say has been the hardest thing of being freelance of of this self-employed life that you've been leading for the last 10 years when we have no money like that's the worst when um either people aren't paying or there's not enough work or you're running yourself into the ground and taking on jobs that give you a really low rate of return um that has always been the hardest and most desperate but you know even when things go incredibly wrong there's always people to support you and to help you, there are people out there who will give you advice. There are people out there who will pass on work to you. So when in 2011, my husband's boss stopped paying him, by the end of the day, I'd, I put that in a blog post and I told people what's happening. And by the end of the day, a group of my friends had passed on enough work to keep us going. One of my friends sent me a Tesco's delivery to keep us fed for a week. Like it was just like a gesture of kindness. And it's somebody who I adore. I adored at the time. And I adore her still. And I'll never forget that and it's something that I have done to pass that forward on many an occasion and you know like food bank donations and stuff are really important to me because I remember that time when I actually thought I couldn't feed my family 
and it's it's horrible and I think a lot of freelancers go through this you know I, I talk to people who have six months worth of work outstanding for payment and they don't know what to do because the brands or the companies are all telling them it's coming it's coming it's in the next run and it doesn't come and what can we do as freelancers in the face of that is that something that you've managed to figure out over time has it got easier it has and uh, you know my my husband works in an industry where these things are more stable and so the income that we get from his business is a lot more reliable the income that i get from blog work is really difficult to manage because I don't always get payment up front. Sometimes you can finish a job and find out the payment terms the company enforces on you as a supplier are three months, which is just devastating when you're hoping that that money is going to be with you within six weeks. In my work as a DJ or a photographer, I get paid up front. And so that's a lot easier to manage. I can take on a job and I can know that before I do that job, I will be paid. And it's interesting that there's difference between the industries. And it's the same when I'm consulting. I'm paid either upfront or within a week of doing the job. So actually having all of those multiple streams helps balance them out. Yes, definitely. If you're relying on one sector, it's difficult. But, you know, I do think that freelancers are not taken seriously when it comes to pay. You know, I see it in illustration. I see it in blogging. I see it in all kinds of industries, people aren't being paid and there's a petition that people can sign that's hoping to change legislation around that so that companies can't get away with not paying or paying late it's something that they they they've done in new york oh really yes in new york itself freelancers union which is stick up for freelancers in america but because you know everywhere gets to set their own laws so it is i think specifically at the moment just to new york but there's something which is meant it now in place where freelancing isn't free, which is about, you know, that protection. And it's that sort of thing that organisations like, you know, Ipsy here in the UK really need to kick government for some sort of legislation. Absolutely. And Ben, the illustrator, is really vocal on this. Um, he's somebody who's really interesting to follow. And, you know, he, he's the person who introduced me to this petition, but he's always talking about these kind of issues that face the illustration freelance industry. But you're right. I think we need to unionize as a mass industry because we aren't being treated well. I'll put the links, of course, to all of those things we've just mentioned at beingfreelance.com in the show notes for Kat's episode. Now, Kat, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself. Make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. What do you have for me? Okay, so I've written them down on a card because I want to imagine that I'm on Would Would I Lie to You? So I DJed Rick Astley's 50th birthday party. I used to work in a hospital cutting up body parts and I started my podcast after a meeting at Facebook. Oh, man. <laughs> There's some good ones in here. <laughs> you DJed Rick Astley's 50th birthday. It, how? Well, a friend of his wife's saw me at a festival that I did in 2015. She thought it'd be hilarious. And so she got in touch via Instagram and booked me for his party. So that was in 2016. So was Rick up in his trench coat dancing in front of you? On no, the... he looked a lot more suave on the evening. <laughs> he just looked like he had a shirt and trousers on. But no, he, he was dancing, but he wasn't up on stage with me. 
But yeah, but he was he. Oh, it went down well. You see, he did say eighties and nineties music. Yeah, no, and I lo- I love Never Gonna Give You Up. Like it's mm. been an obsession of mine since I was a child. So it was a dream come true. You used to cut up body parts in a hospital. Was there a technical name for your job or was that just like a hobby that you did (laughs) when you were bored as a receptionist? No, I was a lab assistant in the histology department. So that's where, like, if you have an operation, that's where the bit that they've taken out of you goes. I mean, you could have just made up the word histology and I would never know. (laughs) Either that or you've really well researched that lie and... Uh, you started your podcast after you went to Facebook. I mean, that sounds entirely plausible. You could because you said that you went to, you know, you've been to places like Facebook. What what was it about that particular visit that made you want to start that podcast, though? So I went and had lunch with somebody who worked at Instagram, and we were talking, and they said, "You have got things out of me that I shouldn't have told you. You should definitely start a <laughs> podcast." So I did. <laughs> And I think we were eating fish. Like, if you ever get the chance to go to Facebook, everybody, I advise you to go. But make sure you go at lunchtime that they take you to the canteen because it's great. Okay, you are an excellent liar because I have no idea where to start. Why would you pick Rick Astley as a fact if that wasn't... That sounds so believably true. It's a a career highlight. So you, you said I had to make them juicy career facts. So that was like one of the best moments. I mean, I don't know quite how to say this, but I really want the chopping up human bits of body one to be true as well. And you never did say right at the beginning, like what your, you know, pre, you know, we started the story at you leaving on maternity leave. So I've no idea what came before that. So who's to say, okay, I do know you didn't DJ at Rick Astley's uh, 50th. You're right, I didn't. And it's it will haunt me that I didn't DJ his 50th. <laughs> hey, there's always his 60th. Yes, exactly. I will start stalking him now. We've only got eight years left to go. Oh, my. Um, I love the fact that you know how long we've <laughs> got to go. Well, you know, a well-researched <laughs> lie is a lie. Like, you know, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to chance it and say his 40th. Oh, do you know what, though? Even though I said it was a lie, I totally believed it. And I'm kind <laughs> of disappointed. You mentioned your podcast there. How how have you found doing that? I love the podcast. Like, I never thought that I would get to work in broadcast. Like, I always wanted to, but I didn't know what the way in was. And so I feel like podcasting is my way of living that dream and being able to interview people and create something that nobody else is creating so when I started my podcast nobody was interviewing creatives in Europe they were all American-based podcasts and I really wanted to tell the stories of people who you wouldn't necessarily have heard of but you should have heard of I think I've done that yes and has it helped your business in at all I'm sure it has like we don't take advertising on the podcast it's all in-house advertising and I get to talk about the conference people who come on the podcast talk about the conference which I'm always really grateful for when they bring it up and they talk about how it's affected them um so yeah I do think it's a good flagship product for the conference because it gives people the time to sit with us to understand where I'm coming from as an event organizer what my knowledge is and also the kind of people that they're likely to meet or hear from there now if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance what would that be get paid up front (laughs) 
That's it. That's the secret sauce to freelance life is get paid first. If you don't, you're always going to be on the back foot. Do you find that it's, um, you know, when you said about the payment terms and stuff like that, is it simply that thing of like that feels unbudgeable and it's like, do I even do this and get that money further down the line or I just say no? Often the person you're talking to won't discuss payment terms with you unless you bring it up. Sometimes you will be lied to about when you'll be paid. And so I really encourage everybody, if they're working in the kind of industry like blogging where you're not being paid upfront, take a deposit get some of the money up front because you need a written contract in place between you and that can be an email chain but I really advise people to create simple agreements that say what the brand will do and say what you will do what the deliverables are what the dates are and the date you will get paid because once you've got that in writing you can easily send up a follow-up legal letter that refers to it and you have a much better standing with a corporate entity than you do with an email chain. Kat, thank you so much for chatting today. Go to beingfreelance.com. There'll be links through so you can say hi to Kat online and check out her podcast. And, you know, if you're into blogging, of course, you've, well, you've probably already heard of Blogtacular, but if not, go check that out as well. Uh, but it's a great podcast. So so certainly give that a listen as well, since you obviously like podcasts. And while you're at beingfreelance.com, don't forget to check out the videos. And when you're on YouTube, I highly recommend going and seeking out Kat's as well. Of course, links at beingfreelance.com. Kat, thank you so much and all the best being freelance. Thanks for having me, Steve. 